the teams you care about. Mac Jones is good. That's not the question. The question is, is he good enough to win repeatedly in this loaded AFC? The stories that matter to you. If I'm Xander Bogarts, I need three things in order to get over that insulting contract offer. This is your home for New England sports. Jason Tatum, superstar. Book it. This is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV-AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. What's up, everybody? Brady Farkas Show on a Friday right here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Another full show today, all 90 minutes, right up until 7 o'clock. Red Sox. Mariners tonight. Yep, we're doing this again. Time for me to potentially be really angry at what's happening. We'll find out how the weekend went on Monday. Our coverage begins at 9-10. First pitch is 10-10. It's Marco Gonzalez against Rich Hill, a battle of a couple of soft toss and lefties, although Rich Hill was a little harder than Marco at this point. We'll talk Sox Mariners. You'll hear a little bit from my conversation I taped today with Jason Churchill of Prospect Insider. We'll talk about a proclamation regarding Chris Sale's return for the Red Sox. And in about 15 minutes, Mike Trimboli is going to stop by. The former UVM hoop star just inducted into the UVM Athletics Hall of Fame last weekend. He'll stop by again. The newly minted Catamount Hall of Famer, Mike Trimboli, in about 15 minutes. You can get in, as always, on the Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury text line. That's 802-585-3026. It is your locally owned Napa stores in Waterbury and Morrisville. Facebook Live, YouTube Live, Twitter as well. You can get in comments anywhere. Five, four, three, two, one. And here we go. The opening thoughts of the Brady Farkas show are brought to you by Sticks and Stuff and by Swanton Lumber. Vermont's most complete locally owned home center with locations in Enosburg, Derby, Middlesex, St. Albans, and at Swanton Lumber. They're online at sticksandstuff.com. When it comes to the NBA Finals and when it comes to Game 4 tonight, I think we're kind of done with the excruciatingly minute details and my new coaching points. I think for the Boston Celtics right now, we are at the point where it's just go play. That's it. I think it is just go play. I was sitting here today and I was thinking about the show and I was thinking about segments. And I was thinking about topics and I was thinking like, do I really want to talk about pick and roll defense? Do I really want to talk about drop coverage? Do I really want to talk about how this team defends the paint? I just decided that I don't because I'm not saying that that stuff is irrelevant at this point. But for me right now, for the Celtics, it comes down to simply this. Come out and be aggressive. For the Boston Celtics right now, I think it is less about strategy and it is more just simply about going out, playing hard, giving effort, and then executing off of that effort. I said the same thing in game three, so I don't want to just repeat myself. But if the Celtics come out tonight with more energy, more effort, and more aggression, they will win this game. They have enough guys that can score, enough bodies that can play, enough length, enough athleticism. I think right now at this moment, they are better than the Golden State Warriors. They are better as we sit right now. If they can just come out, meaning the Celtics, with the right mindset and the right attitude, they can win this game and they can go up three games to one. And that's not a given 
because we've seen the Celtics kind of loaf through games or loaf through halves in these playoffs. We've seen them be turned off when they should have been turned on. So it's not a given that this happens. But we need to see the Celtics come out and just be ready to go from the opening tip. This crowd is going to be brutal on Golden State. The crowd is going to be incredibly lively, both on Clay Thompson and on Draymond Green. If you can come out and match the crowd's liveliness and you can take control early, that's it. For me, the talking points are now close to that simple. Of course, there are bullet points. Of course, there are adjustments. There are actual basketball things that matter. But for me... At this point in game four with a 2-1 series lead where the Celtics are now in control, effort and execution, that is at the top of my list. That is at the top of my list. You can talk about pick and roll defense. You can talk about drop coverage all you want. It all plays a role. But effort, that is the number one thing. That is what we need to have tonight. Celtics cannot come out and loaf through the first quarter and through the first half. If the Celtics come out and they're down two at the break, you're setting yourselves up to get down 12 going into the fourth quarter because of how good the Warriors are in the third. If you come up and you're up 14 again at the break, you can once again absorb the Warriors' third quarter run. Come out with effort, attitude, and aggression. That That is number one on my... If I am Ime Udoka, if I am Damon Stoudemire and his staff, that's it. That is number one for me. Come out and play hard. Play hard. Play really hard. Because the Celtics, I think they are better right now. And they're healthier at this point. We know Rob Williams is banged up. But Iguodala is not 100% for Golden State. Gary Payton hasn't played in a while. Steph Curry's ankle, we just don't know about. He looked okay on some video I saw. But is he 100%? I don't know. So the Celtics are healthier. They've got the crowd in their favor. The crowd is going to be brutal on the Warriors. Take advantage of it. Get up early. Get out fast. If you do that, you win this game, and you are one win away from banner number 18. Something we have waited more than a decade to say, the Celtics NBA champions would be one win away if you come out with effort, attitude, and aggression in this game four on your home court. I mean, legit, like, actual-wise, this is not a must-win game for the Celtics, but they can send a huge message tonight, and they can absolutely, when you've got a team where where your foot is on their throat, you've got to capitalize. And the Celtics have that opportunity right now. Are they going to be a team with killer instinct, which they have lacked at times in these playoffs, or are they going to be a team that just bends at the worst possible time and breaks at the worst possible time? If you're looking for coaching point stuff, if you're looking for strategery, I offer you these few points, but they're all secondary on my list after just playing harder. One, I think Robert Williams needs to be a factor again. He needs to play more than the 14 minutes he played in game two. I will be curious how he responds, right? He's listed as questionable. I'm sure he will play, but how he responds after just one day off, right? Between game two and three, he had two days off. 14 minutes played in game two, 26 in game three. What does he give you tonight? I don't know. 
they need him to be closer to the 26 than the 14. He's a huge factor. Number two, I think the Celtics need to not get baited by Draymond Green. He's going to come out with a different energy. I, I believe that. His energy for himself will be different. The Celtics need to not fixate on him. Play your game. I don't mind if they muddy the waters with Draymond, especially if he's already got a tee like he did in game two. I don't mind that at all. But you can't go in with an agenda about him. You largely ignored his antics in game three. You need to ignore them again as much as possible in game four. Number three on the the coaching point bullet list for Ime Udoka. Keep taking away the Warriors' supporting cast. The depth that I thought was there for Golden State just hasn't been there. Steph has been great, but he hasn't gotten enough help, and he hasn't gotten enough consistent help. Clay was great in Game 3, but Jordan Poole didn't do much. Otto Porter did nothing. In Game 1, Porter was good, but Clay didn't do much. It hasn't been consistent. And if the Celtics can keep making that the case and make Steph have to do everything, they will have a great opportunity to win. Colin Cowherd of Fox Sports Radio agrees. I thought it was crazy for KD to leave the Warriors. And Brooklyn's been a mess. But you know what Steph Curry misses in this series? He misses Kevin Durant. He misses Kevin Durant. Clay's been good, but you're watching the series. Great Steph plus good Clay. Bruh, not enough. It hasn't been enough. It hasn't been enough. If the Celtics can take away, continue to take away those role players and make Steph do everything, I trust they can win this game. There is one thing from the Warriors' standpoint I heard today that I found very interesting. When Kevon Looney is on the floor for Golden State, they outscore the Celtics by 15 points. When Kevon Looney is on the floor, they outscore the Celtics by 15 points. Looney has played increasingly less in this series. Draymond has played 45 minutes more than Looney. I don't quite know why, but Kevon Looney seems to be a difference maker for Golden State. We will see if Steve Kerr goes to him more here in game four. He played 25 minutes in game one, 21 in game two, and 17 in game three. We will see if he plays more tonight and if he can be that difference maker. I'm pumped for it. I am pumped for it. We're going to have game five of the NBA Finals on Sunday right here on DEV. Could be the clincher. We'll see. You can make it that way if you can win tonight. Nine o'clock, Celtics Warriors game four. It is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. When we come back, Mike Trimboli is going to stop by the show. The former Catamount Hoop legend just recently inducted into the UVM Athletics Hall of Fame. Mike Trimboli, what was the moment like when he got inducted? That's next on D. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Brady Farkas show right here on this Friday on WDEV AM and FM and WDEV radio 
NBA.com. Deviating from our NBA Finals conversation to talk a little more localized hoops right now. Joining me on the phone line is Mike Tremboli, former UVM men's basketball star, class of 2009. Just this past weekend got inducted into the UVM Athletics Hall of Fame. It was supposed to be a 2020 shindig, but, you know, COVID pushed it back. So here we are in 2022. Mike, congratulations. Thanks for being with us. How are you? Great, Brady. How are you doing? Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Excited to be on. Well, I appreciate you being with me as well. Again, look, this was supposed to be in 2020. Did the extra year and a half uh, help you per- perfect your speech? <laughs> Not even close. I think I was editing it at the table as other speeches were happening. Um, no, it, it was uh, it was awesome. Um, you know, we really got a good turnout and a lot of support. A lot of people that I was surprised to see show up. Um, um, that I haven't seen in a long time. Uh, so it was just really nice um, being in a room filled with people. And, and honestly, it, um, it, was, it was great to have such a heavy basketball uh, crew that got inducted with myself, Marcus, May, Courtney, and Herb Brown. Um, Colleen was a swimmer um, who also was inducted. But to have, you know, essentially five of the six people being uh, with basketball it just seemed like a real – you know, a, a basketball event, a basketball induction. Um, so it was really cool to have that. And, and I think UVM and, and their uh, admin um, did a really good job of putting everything together and coordinating, and it was seamless and, and perfect. So, You know, you had a lot of extra time, obviously, to think about that night So and build up to it. When it finally came, what was the experience like? Um, it's surreal. Like uh, I messaged, um, Krista Korn, um, yesterday just to thank her again for like having everyone around for me, the induction, I took it as not like it wasn't, even though I was getting inducted, it was just a celebration of, of the people that I played with our era. Um, and with Marcus also getting inducted, like we had a bunch of our old teammates and everybody up, um, to have everyone up for the weekend. It wasn't just that one night. It was, it was more so the entire weekend of hanging out, um, with old teammates and, and really telling stories about the times, um, that we had for me, that was the part that I enjoyed the most. Um, but the event itself was like, it was surreal in the sense that, they had a whole video playing of you and, and I, I haven't been around that type of environment, especially like, you know, focused on, on me and, and the other inductees. It was, it was really cool to experience. And I tried to just take it in as much as I could um, as a, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. So um, being there with, with my wife, my, my kid, uh, Gianna um, was, it was just an awesome experience and, and one that, you know, and, 10, 15 years from now, you know, we'll look back on, we have the videos of everything in the pictures and, and, you know, talk about it. So um, I'm, I'm, I was super happy about how it was set up and ran and, and, and uh, it was a fun, fun weekend. You know, you still live locally. So were you the guy hosting all your old teammates? So I can picture you grilling on the back deck for everybody with a couple of adult beverages, you know, you picture you holding court at the Tromboli residence. Is that how it went down? Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, we had golf set up. I, yeah. I was doing the setup of the tee times and, uh, my, I, I belong to Vermont national, which is a local, uh, course in Burlington, in the Burlington area in South Burlington. And, uh, the head pro calls me up. Uh, I think it was like two days before and he's like, Mike, 
you're good. But for you to have five tea times in one day is not like, what's going on here? And so I told them the whole situation and the story about, you know, that we had a bunch of guys coming up. And then at the end of our conversation, he was like, we could do closest to the pin. We could do long drive contests, whatever you want to do. Um, so, yeah, we did that. We went to the beach a little bit, cooked out um, at Oak Ledge, and, which a local beach uh, yeah. in, in the Burlington area. So, um, it was good just to, yeah, I enjoy doing stuff like that and coordinating and, and really making it a, a full experience. And as you said, I'm local, so I'm the one that had to do it, but I enjoy doing it. So, Former UVM Hoops star and now UVM Athletics Hall of Famer Mike Tromboli with us here on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. You mentioned going in with Marcus Blakely, a guy you played with, I think, for three years at UVM. I think he was one year behind you. Uh, man, I'm thinking about it now, and I'm just like, what a duo that must have been on the court at one time to have two guys that eventually got into the Hall of Fame on the same team as running mates for three years. That must have been some pretty special times at Patrick Jim. It was, it was, um, I mean, he's electrifying in himself. And, and so to be able to play with somebody like that, um, made my job a lot easier out there and, and really took a lot of pressure off of me. Um, you know, the, really the duo that I say that, you know, I hate to say compares, but you know, is on that level is the TJ Taylor duo, um, prior to us getting there. And, you know, you don't, somebody said it lot or two nights ago in the Celtics game, like, Jordan without Pippen, um, you know, uh, some of the, you know, Le LeBron and whoever else he picks <laughs> choose on his team, right? Like you can't do it yourself. Um, and to be able to have somebody like Marcus, who, I mean, his resume speaks for itself, um, to be able to do it with somebody like that. Um, you know, we, we spent a lot of time and he has a kid that's, eight months old and, and is, or, or I'm sorry, 10 months old and is running around and <laughs> played with our kid. And, and it was just, it was awesome. It was awesome to be with him in our, in our dad stages now, yeah. um, uh, you know, in parallel. So um, it was, it made it a lot of fun and, and uh, a lot, a lot of excitement in the gym during, during our time there. You know, I watched your your video that played at the uh, induction ceremony, and the guy who spoke on your behalf was a was a UVM professor, and he mentioned that you were under tremendous pressure to come in and follow the the Sorrentine Coppenrath era. Did you feel that pressure while you were playing? Um, I did not. Um, I I grew up as like somebody that didn't have a huge like name or a huge recognition, you know, outside. So, so anyone saw me, my whole thing was I had to prove myself um, through and through. So I, I always saw myself as an underdog. And, and when I came into the situation, I just had like the target on my own back to be like, you're nobody. So go out and prove yourself every oh. single day, whether, you know, it's in a championship game or it's day 20 of practice in preseason. Um, I always felt like I had a target on my back and I had something to prove. So it was never like that for me. And um, it's funny that you say that because a part of my speech that I completely left out, but I, I was kicking myself after the fact because my speech just went in a different way. As I, <laughs> as you said, like spending two years practicing it, <laughs> um, changed completely that day. Um, but, you know, Al Rosa, the guy who spoke on my behalf, the UVM professor, 
um, when I was talking with him a couple of months ago about this day and, and he was just saying like the pressure and the target and like what you had to do to come into it and, and what you did, um, even though we didn't win any championships, which is in my mind, like one of my downfalls as, as a player here was not getting that championship. He was like, think about what you did and what you had to walk into following up that Syracuse team of 0405 and, yeah. and what you guys like you see you see um uh teams or, or i say organizations but college teams like when they have a good run the next year they completely drop off and very far and few between do you have a team that keeps that you know bridges that gap and goes especially when they have five seniors that had graduated and all of them were contributors martin clemesh was really the only one on our team that was on that team that actually contributed in the, in the day in, day out. Um, a little bit, Kyle Simplicki did a, a little bit as well, but um, Martin was really the only one that was like a part of that team. And so yeah. to take it from that team and continue on the success, I mean, we went the next two years, we went to back-to-back championships, lost to Albany, as you know. Yeah. Um, uh, and so, but, you know, to continue that success through on, I, I think was um, success in itself. So, you know, your career at UVM predates me being here. You know, I've been here for, for six years now, so I didn't see you play in person. The numbers are staggering, right? Over 2,000 points. You graduated as the all-time leader in assists. I believe also as the all-time leader in minutes played. Why do people not talk about you as one of the all-time greats in this program's history? Because looking at the numbers, they probably should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, I, I think... I don't know, to be honest. Um, I think that there's something to be said with championships. Um, I'm a huge proponent of winning. Um, And and if you don't get that one, it's tough in our our world. And if you go back and you look on it, if you took our team and you put them into today's world, how would it have fared? I think we would have done probably, you know, what what that 0405 team winning three out of four. you know, and Becker's an awesome coach. Maybe, you know, that was it. Not, not to say, you know, our coaches weren't great, but, um, you know, it just, you only get four years to do it and you, you can, you know, four times to do it really in, in terms of a conference tournament. Um, but maybe that would have changed or elevated, you know, my status. Um, I didn't have a long professional career. I kind of got into the business world pretty early on um, and took that route instead. So, um, who knows? But, um, you know, I just think that I was I- I'm very comfortable and happy with my career and very comfortable and happy with the guys I played with. Like, it's hard. I now have some of my best friends are from those teams. Yeah. Um, and, and you go around and you look at like years before me and years after me and, you know, the disconnect that happens. And I'm, I'm proud and, and happy to say like in the visit in the video, um, Al Rosa said it. Um, but I am very much a family person and, and really holding strong with those relationships. And, and that's something that I take away more than being a top, you know, 10, top five, whatever, like those, those relationships that I have with my teammates are, are special. So 
I'll get you out of here on two quick kind of fun questions. I don't know if you heard this. Actually, I'm sure you have because he told me he's told you. But we had Coach Brennan on on Tuesday, and he said 624 career assists. He never saw one of them. That's that's <laughs> just like shots fired that all you did was shoot. Do you have a response to Coach Brennan here on the air? <laughs> No, I like it. I, I wish I wish all I did was shot the ball. Um, no, honestly, like it's funny because you know I I was known as that, but my whole thing was take what the defense gives you and and try to win games. And, yeah. And so that's what I you know when the defense was eyeing on me, my whole thing was to get other people involved. So it kind of went away from me a little bit, and then be able if you go and watch like my points were never like, you know, 20 points in the first half. A lot of my points came in, in the crunch time when, when our team needed them. And also at the foul line when teams were fouling us at the end of games. Um, yeah. And if, you know, there's a stat out there that's like in the first half, I was probably like an 80% free throw shooter. But in like last four minutes of the game, I was like a 90%, 90-something percent free throw shooter. And, and that's something that I love to like, I don't remember what the numbers were, but I just knew at the end of the games that I was going to get fouled and I needed to make those free throws. And that's where a decent amount of my points came from. So finally, uh, your class of 09, I graduated college 2012, so you're a little older, but we're from the same era, basically. We're from the baggy shorts era. I looked at the highlights. Tell me you were not wearing like a triple XL jersey. You were swimming in that thing. <laughs> I know. Well, at the time, too, it's like you got what you got. And I feel like now, nowadays it's like, you know, it's all fashion, which is great. And I, I would still prefer maybe like maybe a little bit more length on my shorts, but um, it uh, definitely wasn't form fitting. And, and at the time in my, in my uh, acceptance speech, um, I was looking up at the big giant screen and I was looking at my arms in that picture. I was like, God, where did those go? <laughs> Uh, oh man! Yeah, so uh, I, hopefully I can get back there at some point. Yeah, the dad phase is really, you know, I've I've fully embraced the dad the dad bod. So, Mike Tromboli, former UVM basketball star, class of two thousand nine, inducted into the Catamount Athletics Hall of Fame this past weekend. Mike, uh, thanks so much for the time. Congratulations, be well, and uh, we'll have you on again down the road sometime. Awesome. Thanks, Brady. Good talking to you. Yeah, good to talk to you as well. That's Mike Trimboli, former UVM hoop star. I want to bring him on more often. Mike is very, very insightful. And I think, and he's because he still lives in the area, I know he goes to and watches a lot of UVM hoops games. So I want to bring him on more often as we get into hoop season again. I don't want to wish away summer, but when we get to hoop season again, I want Mike to be more a part of the show. I played against Mike once in the Burlington Y League. I think I went for like 14 and he went for like 64. I mean, it was just insane where he was hitting from and where he was pulling from. He just did not miss. Beyond that, he said some things that are very interesting that I want to get to. And I got my own take on the interview you just heard. We'll talk about it next after the CBS National News Update here on DEV. On the sports stories of the day, text in at 802-585-3026. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in Brady Farkas show right here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEV radio.com reminder to subscribe to the Brady Farkas show podcast channel. It's free on Apple podcasts and Spotify and all of our 
full shows and all of our exclusive interviews are going to uh, always be posted up there as well. So appreciate Mike Tromboli, the former UVM men's basketball star, for dropping by. That interview already available on our podcast channel, so you can go check it out. And I want to recap a couple of things quickly from that interview before we move on. I asked Mike this question, but now I ask it of everyone. Why? When we talk about the best players in UVM history, why do we not talk about Mike Trimboli? Seriously, why do we not talk about Mike Trimboli? Because, look, I wasn't here for his era, right? So I I didn't see Trimboli play in person, but nobody that I talked to mentions Trimboli as one of the best players in school history. And you know what? We should be. We should be having that discussion. The numbers are insane. The productivity is insane. A four-year starter, a four-time all-conference selection. He scored more than 2,000 career points, all-time leader in assists, all-time leader in minutes played. Why, when we want to do our Mount Rushmore of UVM basketball greats, why is Mike Tromboli not? on the radar of the conversation. I would really like to know. I would really like to know because we obviously hear about Sorrentine and Coppenrath, the nostalgic go to Kevin Roberson, Eddie Benton's name comes up. If you're looking at recency bias, people will float out Anthony Lamb or Ryan Davis, even Ben Shungu garners a lot of support. Like all those names get thrown around, get thrown around in that rarefied company. Trimboli's doesn't. And I want that to change. In fact, I want it to change for both him and Marcus Blakely. They both deserve to be in that conversation. I don't care who you put as number one. It doesn't really matter to me who you think is the best player to ever play in the program's history. But as for the list of guys that should be in the conversation, Mike Tremoli and Marcus Blakely are never on that list. And In my opinion, starting now, starting today, they should be. They should be. I mean, what is the reason for them not to be in the conversation? You don't mention Trimboli specifically because his team never won an America East title. You know exactly how I feel about that. When it comes to individual accomplishments and individual perception, I don't think you need team accomplishments to prop you up. If you were a great player, you were a great player. And a lot goes into winning a team championship. How your coaching was, how your teammates were, how the league was at the time, how the league's coaches were at the time. So I don't think that Mike Trimboli needed an America East title or two or three or four to validate how great a player he was individually. When you're talking about an individualized debate, of how good somebody is. I don't think the team championships have to prop a guy up and I don't think they should weigh a guy down. It should just be who was the best player. And Mike Trimboli could do it all, right? He could score. He could play. He was durable and he could pass. That's pretty darn good to me. That, that should get you on the list of conversation. If you were a great, being a great player is different than being a great winner or being part of a great winning team. Just because Mike Trimboli didn't win a title in the America East doesn't take away from his individual greatness. 
he should absolutely be on your list. And Marcus Blakely, I believe, did go to an NCAA tournament, if I'm remembering that correctly, the one where they played North Carolina. I hope I have that right. But, you know, just because he got to one, if I'm remembering properly, I don't think that that should prop him way up. Like, great players are great players, and they should be remembered thusly. And I think the, maybe the other thing that plays into it is people look at it like, well, hey, Blakely and, and Trimboli, they play together. They're both Hall of Famers. Like, we, we can't prop up Trimboli because he had another great player with him. He had another Hall of Famer. Well, that doesn't matter. I know we tend to give bonus points to the guys who are lone wolves and the guys who do it with no help, but you can't penalize Trimboli and Blakely for playing with each other. You can't penalize them for having each other. Sorrentine and Coppenrath had each other. They don't get penalized for that. Lamb had help from a really good group of players like Kurt Steidel and Ernie Duncan and Trey Bell Haynes. Trey Bell Haynes had help from those same guys. Benny and Davis had each other this year. Like, you can't, there's nothing to hold against Blakely and Tromboli as far as I'm concerned. They deserve to be in whatever top 10 list you have, and they deserve to be in consideration when people talk about the best players they ever saw come through this program. 100%. It is time that we stop looking at the gap between Sorrentine and Coppenrath and the Becker years. It's time we stop looking at that gap as like lost years for the program, and we give these guys their due. Trimboli and Blakely are both now in the Hall of Fame. They deserve it. They very well may deserve to have their numbers retired at Patrick Jim someday, and they deserve to be at the forefront of your minds as we talk about the greats in this program. Sticking on the interview real quick, one more point. I also thought it was really interesting what Trimboli said about pressure. Because in his Hall of Fame induction video at UVM, and I watched it, the presenter said that Trimboli had huge pressure on him to come in and follow the Sorrentine Coppenrath group. Like, come and follow this, the, uh, I'm sorry, follow the Sorrentine and Coppenrath team and then kind of keep the program's success going, right? They had just won the game against Syracuse, and now it's Trimboli's job to keep that going. I asked Mike if he felt that pressure during his time in Catamount Country. I did not. Um, I I grew up as, like, somebody that didn't have a huge, like, name or a huge recognition, you know, outside. So, so anyone saw me, my whole thing was I had to prove myself um, through and through. So... I, I always saw myself as an underdog, and, and when I came into this situation, I just had, like, the target on my own back to be like, you're nobody, so go out and prove yourself every mm-hmm. single day, whether, you know, it's in a championship game or it's day 20 of practice in preseason. One, I love guys who are self-motivated. I love guys who are able to take themselves to that next level. That's first. But second, I, I believe that Mike Trimboli didn't feel pressure. I do. And the presenter who said he had all this pressure on him, I I think he's right. I think there was pressure on Trimboli, but I also believe him when he says, I didn't feel it. Like when you're that young and you're that naive, I think all you're looking at 
the situation is that it's an opportunity, right? You're just looking for a shot. And I think that Mike was looking at it at the time, like, hey, these guys are graduating. I got a chance to play a lot of minutes here. I got a chance to play right away to show what I can do. I don't think he's looking at it like, oh, no, I'm following TJ Sorrentine. I think he was like, damn, there's a spot open, and I got a chance to play a lot right away. So I believe he felt no pressure. But looking back, I mean, there clearly was. There clearly was pressure. The presenter was right. I mean, you're following two of the best, two of the best players in program history. You're part of a group that's tasked with making sure the program isn't a, you know, a one-hit wonder in terms of winning a, a game in the tournament. You ushered in a new coaching era there, the Mike Lonergan era. It was just a whole new era, a lot of turnover. With that comes pressure. So I believe he didn't feel it, but just because he didn't feel it doesn't mean that it was there. And there now is a is pressure on every group that comes into Catamount country to build upon what's been done here over the last several years. But yeah, Mike Tromboli, a great interview in the hall of fame. And I I want people to put more respect on his name and Marcus Blakely's name, because what they did statistically performance wise was incredible and they deserve to be remembered for all their accomplishments on a UVM note. I haven't talked talk this much UVM hoops in like two and a half months. I'm loving this right now, but real quick, I cannot wait for the schedule to be finalized for this year. It should come out here within the next month or so, I would think. Like, I got to think that we'll get at least the, the finalized non-conference schedule here soon. But we have seen or have leaked some of the UVM non-conference schedule for uh, for this upcoming season. We know the Catamounts are going to play Toledo. That's going to be a home game. We know that. We know that they're going to play USC on the road, Southern Cal, the Trojans. Cal State Fullerton, I think, is on the schedule for next year. Cal State Fullerton went to the tournament this past year, like UVM did. Fullerton lost to Duke in the first round. I think Fullerton was a, I, can't, I think they were a 15 seed because I think Duke got a two. So, uh, look, there's a lot of... T- I mean, USC had a deep run in the tournament a couple of years ago. Fullerton's in the tournament. Once again, this will be a good schedule. I'm sure we'll see the usual suspects, you know, the Yales, the Dartmouths. I'm sure those guys will be on the schedule. Cornell, maybe. But USC, Fullerton, and Toledo, we know they are all on the schedule as well. It's going to be a different team this year. No Benny, no Davis, no Isaiah Powell. Uh... Thinking more, there's at least four guard, four guys here that are off the starting lineup that are leaving here. They could lose the entire starting lineup here. Finn Sullivan will be back, I believe. Um, Deloney will be back. That's good. Got a couple of guys that transferred out. So we'll see. It's going to be a different team this year. Davis gone, Shungu gone. Uh, I think Robin Duncan is going to be back. That, I think, is the case. So we'll see. We'll get more, um, more intel on that stuff. But, yeah, UVM. Men's Hoops schedule should be coming out here in the next month. I'm excited to see it. All right, we do this every single day. Let's get to who's saying what. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What did he say? Mac Jones. Good Lord. Mel Kuyper's got to slow down on this. Mac Jones ain't going to work, folks. It's not going to work. He's got to come to terms with it. It's not going to work. They really said that? Every damn thing is politics and race, and I'm losing my mind over it. It's time for Who's Saying What on the Brady Parker Show on WDEV-AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Game four tonight of the NBA Finals. Celtics taking on the Golden State Warriors at TD Garden. 
Colin Cowherd continues to take shots at Jason Tatum this week. Now, what I'm about to play, you came before game three, so I acknowledge that this is not a post-game three Celtics win comment, but they just got brought to my attention today. Colin Cowherd continues to call Jason Tatum not confident and continues to take shots at him. I like my stars to be confident. He came out and said, you know, when I heard all those rumors about breaking up me and Jalen Brown, I started questioning whether or not, uh, you know, I was the guy to lead the team. And I said on the air, I don't like that. Keep that one to yourself. I don't need to see every meal on Twitter, and I don't need every thought in front of a microphone. Keep some things to yourself. Oh, no, he's doing it now, again, verbalizing self-doubt. Marginal players think they're superstars. And Colin continued on taking shots at Tatum. He sounds like Andy Dalton. I want my guy to sound like Matt Stafford or Joe Burrow. I mean, marginal players like Baker can sometimes get cocky. But if you're great like Burrow or Stafford or Tatum, you got to know you're great. I hear that, and my takeaway is somewhere in him, twice in the last week, he has self-doubt. So I went and found the quote that has set Colin off. And earlier, or, or rather Tatum said about 10 days ago, that earlier in the season, he questioned himself. He did say he had some self-doubt. And my question for Colin is, why aren't you allowed to admit that? Why is that a sign of weakness? Because isn't insecurity and isn't self-doubt, isn't that part of the process for growing and maturing? Now, if he said today, this instant, that right now, I wonder if I'm the guy, that would be a problem. If he says that right now, he doesn't trust himself to be the leader of this team, that would be different. But the quote was Jason Tatum reflecting upon a different stage of his journey that led him to where he is right now. Why is that something to be looked down upon? I, I don't get it. We all evolve. We all grow. We all have self-doubt at some point about something along the way. I have no problem with Jason Tatum verbalizing it. This entire season for Tatum has been a season of growth, him growing as a leader, him struggling with the new responsibility of being a leader, him finding the strength to overcome that doubt and that struggle. It's been about his growth and maturation as a player. It's been about his development and ascension into superstardom. And all that comes with it. So, I mean, usually we champion athletes for growing and being reflective and for a maturation process. Why can't Colin credit Tatum? I, I don't get it. Jason Tatum says, hey, when we were losing games earlier in the year, I wondered if I, if I was the guy to lead this team. And now six months later, four months later, two months later, his team's in the finals, and he knows he's the guy to lead the team. I, I do, look, if, you, if Tom Brady, if you ask Tom Brady something now, about early in his career, he's going to look at it differently. He's going to reflect. He might tell you, you know what? When I was coming up, I, I didn't know I could do it. I didn't know I could be the guy. When you go talk to the superstar baseball player that got sent down twice, you know, back to the minors when they got called up, or it took them six years to get to the majors. Aaron Judge didn't get to the majors until he was 26 years old, I believe, 25 years old. You're telling me there's not some self-doubt there? 
about why it's not happening for me earlier. Xander Bogarts, who's now wondering, do the Red Sox really want me? You're, you're telling me there's not doubt and insecurity there? I think it's okay to verbalize that. Every person, every player is on a journey. And everybody's journey goes at different speeds. And everybody hits different benchmarks at different times. And Jason Tatum, he's 24 years old. He is 24 years old. What, what he is saying that, you know what? As a 24-year-old earlier this year, I wondered if I could do this. Now he's proven that he can. Don't you think Giannis had some doubts at some point? Durant clearly had doubts that he could do it. That's why he went and joined Golden State. So I, I, I think Colin has taken some unnecessary shots here. Over the last week, I've heard him say multiple things about Tatum and his supposed lack of confidence. Like, Colin just has this narrative and is trying to find more evidence to prove it. But I, I think that was the past. And now Tatum has found his voice and has found his place on this team. It's the Pretty Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Look, Tatum isn't demonstrative. Not often. He's not loud. That doesn't mean that he can't lead or doesn't lead, right? It, it, like, I think Colin's looking for you to be a guy who is demonstrative. Iverson was demonstrative. Kobe was demonstrative. Westbrook is demonstrative. Like, he's looking for guys to be demonstrative. Tatum isn't that guy, but just because he's more soft-spoken doesn't mean that he can't do the job. and doesn't mean that he doesn't believe he can do the job. And plus, Tatum knows this. The Celtics are a, they, they are a team that does not rely on just one voice. They are a team where multiple people are empowered. Smart's empowered. Horford's empowered. Jalen's empowered. Tatum's empowered. These guys all get their shot at being a leader. And I think Tatum has grown very, very effectively over the course of this year. Maybe in December, yeah, he had doubts. And the results were proving those doubts valid. But now, I think he's found what he's looking for. All right. What we will do, by the way, the show is brought to you by ProDriver Training. That's ProDriver Training, Vermont's premier truck driver training school. They're online at ProDriverCDL.com. That's online at ProDriverCDL.com. I came prepared to hammer Cam Newton today. I got to walk back that hammering a little bit. I'll tell you what changed for me. That's next on DEV. At Union Bank. This is Field Yates of ESPN, and you're listening to The Brady Farkas Show on WDEV Radio and the WDEV app. Welcome back in. Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. Little local high school sports news championship Friday right now. In uh, Division Two softball, Linden just topped Enosburg 5-3 to win the state title. They are back-to-back state champions. Congratulations to the Hornets. You know, if you've listened to this station today, you've probably heard the promo running for this show. And in that promo, you heard me say that I've defended Cam Newton a lot, but I can't defend him for this. I've simmered down a bit on that because I need to give the full story because it took me a little time to get the full story as well. And I want to share it with you. 
Cam Newton was recently on a podcast. and He was talking about a lot of things, but he talked about his time in New England. And this is a quote. He said, the New England experience, the New England experience was an effed up situation. I was still learning the offense seven to eight weeks into the season. He also talked about going to the line of scrimmage, not knowing what to do. And hearing him say that New England was a really effed up situation, at first, it really bothered me. And that is where, you know, me wanting to hammer him came from. Because I'm like, look, you signed with the team in late June. You knew there was not going to be a lot of time when you got here. And you took up the challenge anyways. Like, Cam Newton could have sat out a year. He could have taken a backup job where he could have slow played his development somewhere. He could have waited until someone got hurt, whatever. But instead, he chose to take it to go to a situation where he was going to have to follow Tom Brady, where he was going in during the COVID time where he wasn't going to be able to do a lot of extra work, do a lot of work with teammates, go meet the coaching staff early, couldn't be at the facility. And he chose to be in a situation where it was going to be a much, much condensed time period in terms of trying to learn an offense. He chose all of that. So I was ready to blast Cam because it sounded like he was just making excuses. But then I read the full transcript. And Cam said he knows he put himself in that situation. So that is where I then kind of walk everything back. He says, before I sit up here and allow the narrative to be made that Cam doesn't have it anymore, I'm taking full responsibility and saying I put myself in that effed up situation, which then had a ricochet effect to how people think of me. Cam is right about that. I wanted to hammer him. I thought he sounded whiny. I thought he was making excuses. I think Cam was right about what he said at the end there. He put himself in this situation. We generally gave him the benefit of the excuses. And he is right that how he played New England, which was not well, I don't think it was as bad as everybody else thought, but not great. That performance or lack thereof performance colored how everybody feels about him and what everybody thinks he can do. I think he's right about that. So at the end of the day, I can't be as tough on Cam Newton as I thought I was going to be. It, that was a hard year, and and I will make the excuses for Cam Newton. That was really hard. I, I would have loved to have seen what Cam Newton would have done in a second year in Foxborough. I, I really would have because I don't think it's fair to say, oh, he was bad in Carolina last year. Cam was under the same kind of pressure except worse in Carolina last year. You sign late. You have to turn it around quick. I, I think last year was an incredibly hard situation for him to succeed in. I don't think it's fair to knock Cam for what he did in Carolina either. I think Cam Newton in Foxborough would have been a lot better in year two. Would they have won the 10 games that they won with Mac Jones? I thought so. I thought so. I thought they were a 9-11 to win team with Cam. I thought they were 7-10 to with Mac. I thought largely they were the same. A little bit of fluctuation on both sides with the one over the other. I thought that Cam could have taken the Patriots to the playoffs. Again, don't know that they were that they were that he would have, but I felt like he would have had a, I I would have loved to have seen Cam get a second chance in New England. Again, Mac was good. The team got to the playoffs. It all worked out. For my own eyesight, I would have liked to have seen how Cam would have done. Let's stick with the Patriots. Now that the offseason portion of the 
now that the uh, workout portion of the offseason is over, we got some finishing touches here to put on them. Devin McCourty, the longtime safety, he spoke about his free agent process and wanting to come back to New England. Me and Slate talk about it every year. It's you, you, as you get older, you you don't know how much teams want you to come play football for them. So um, I think it, it was for me. It was obviously trying to to stay here and getting it done. And um, I think now going into year thirteen, like that relationship is is so easy to conduct and, and get the business done. That um, it's not like in younger when I was younger. Like Frenchy comes up and you're nervous. You don't know like. I was I'm completely calm and sound because like I'm I'm content with my career. I, I am always amazed at what motivates athletes. Right? I talk about this a lot. Every athlete has a different motivation. And it I can't really judge guys' motivations. Some guys are motivated by money. Some guys are motivated by titles. Some guys are motivated by playing time and opportunity. And other guys they're motivated by comfort. And at this point in his career, Devin McCourty is motivated by comfort. Can we play the end of that again, everybody? Can we find the end? I'm completely calm and sound because like I'm I'm content with my career. I'm content with my career. He's already won titles, doesn't need to go elsewhere to chase that. He's already got money. He doesn't need to go elsewhere to chase that. He's already played a couple of years with his brother. And that was a huge thing he wanted to accomplish in his career. Remember, Jason played in Foxborough for at least two, maybe a third year, but I think two. He's already done everything. At this point, what motivates Devin McCourty is comfort. That's it. So I'm always amazed at guys who, and, and just what motivates them. I'm always amazed at it because they are, it's all different. We all want to say, to get, oh, I can't believe you chased the money. I can't believe you did that. Everybody's why is different, okay? Everybody's why is different. So McCourty is telling you, you know what? I don't need to go anywhere. I only want to play here. I'm here. My family's here. I'm comfortable here. They value me here. I know the system here. I've already got money. I've already got rings. I've already played with my brother. There's nothing left to accomplish. Now I want to play, but I want to play on my terms, and these are my terms. I want to stay in New England. I always think that that is cool. Um all right, we got time for one more Patriots cut here, guys. Can we find the Mac Jones soundbite? Okay, here's Mac Jones talking yesterday about Bill Belichick's involvement with the offense. It was fun to see him uh, get snaps or for me to get snaps from him, but we were just talking through something with the running backs. And like you said, he's very hands-on. And, you know, last year, you know, he's more with the defense and stuff. But now it's like, okay, let me show you this. And he's kind of coaching us and coaching the running backs in that drill about the way that they need to get through the line of scrimmage. So, um, you know, he's very hands-on, and I feel like we've made a lot of growth together. So Mac talking about Bill Belichick saying he's been very hands-on in the offense, and I said this a couple of weeks ago. This, to me, is a problem. This is a problem because there's not a good – ending to this for the Patriots. Let me explain. I believe that what's best for Mac Jones, what's best for Mac Jones is to have Bill Belichick be a part of the offense. I don't trust Matt Patricia and Joe judge to bring the best out of Mac Jones or this offense. I do not trust that arrangement. I do trust 
that Bill Belichick is a good offense. Bill Belichick knows more football than anybody, and Bill Belichick knows what wreaks havoc on a defense. So if Bill Belichick was calling the plays, working with Mac, I'd feel very good about the Patriots' offense. However, what is good for the Patriots' offense and what is good for Mac is not necessarily the best for the Patriots' team. You follow me? Because if Bill Belichick is all over the offense and he's got his, he's, he's making his imprint on the offense, well, now he's not doing that with the defense. Bill Belichick has been around the Patriots' defense forever. Right? He could ignore the Pats' offense to a degree because McDaniels was there. Now he can't. So if he goes that way and he vacates the defense, Steve Belichick can be great and Gerard Mayo can be great. Bill Belichick is great. So now if he goes over here, that side gets worse. That's a problem for the Patriots. The defense, I already think, is the thing that has the most question marks on this team. That would be a problem if Bill Belichick is not involved over there. Then you look at what happens on game day. If Bill Belichick is working with the offense, he's working with Mack, and he's going over the tape and looking at the iPad with him and all that, well, who's throwing the challenge flag? And what about who's what about who knows what an injury whose injury it is? What about helping out with any of the game day stuff that come over the cross of game? A guy gets injured. We're throwing the challenge flag. We're calling timeout. I see they're subbing this guy. If Bill Belichick is not able to do all of that because he's focused on the offense, then that is bad for the Patriots. So what is good for Mac is not good for the team, and what is better for the team is bad for Mac. If Belichick does what he's always been doing and leaves Judge and Patricia to Mac, I don't think you're getting the best out of him. And this is why it's a problem. I wish the Patriots would have hired a young, up-and-coming offensive coordinator. I wish they would have found their Sean McVay, their Kevin O'Connell, their Shane Waldron, their Zach Taylor, their, you know, Kyle Shanahan. Because the Patriots needed a young, innovative offensive mind. I understand Bill Belichick has a limited circle, and he may not trust some 32-year-old offensive coordinator, but that would have been, I think, the play to go that would have helped everybody. We have never had better offensive minds than we have right now in the NFL. We've never had better offensive minds than we have at this moment in history. So I got to think somebody could have come in who's been working with the offense and could have made the offense interesting and better. And Bill could have kept working with the defense and manning the sideline. But instead, Bill decided to go to a group of assistants that he could control, he could overpower, and that he really trusted to let him do that. And I think that was a mistake. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury text line is open, 802-585-3026. Okay, Red Sox Mariners tonight at 10-10. Before we get to looking at that, the Red Sox say they might be open to using Chris Sale as a reliever when he comes back. I'll tell you why I'm begrudgingly against that. 
That's next on DEV. WDEV. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in. Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Jazz with George Thomas is coming up next. That will be from 7 until a little after 9. And then Red Sox baseball takes the airwaves at 9-10. First pitch 10-10 between the Red Sox and the Mariners. The Red Sox came out today and said that they are open to the idea of using Chris Sale in the bullpen. The thought process being that the team can get Sale back from injury quicker and kind of help cover up the bullpen issues. So I get the thought process. But I really don't think, excuse me, I really don't think it's in the best interest of the Red Sox I'd like to keep developing Sale as a starter, and here's why. If Sale comes back to the rotation, then Whitlock gets to go back to the bullpen. Whitlock has been iffy as a starter. He was great as a bullpen arm. He's had an ERA of over four as a starter and an ERA of less than one as a reliever. I believe in Whitlock as a starter long term, but I never wanted him to throw 175 innings this year. There was always going to be a point where he stopped starting as far as I was concerned. There was always going to be a point where he went back to the bullpen. If that point is mid-July or the 1st of August when Sale is ready to come back, then I would take that. I save the innings on Whitlock's arm. I get back a high-leverage reliever in that bullpen, and Sale comes back to the starting staff, and he can help fill the holes in the rotation. I told you before, I don't bank on anything anymore from Chris Sale. But I think having him as a starter is better than having him as a reliever. If I can cap Whitlock's innings or control Whitlock's innings, and I can put him in the pen, get a high leverage arm back out there, and get sale in the rotation, I think that is better. And also, I just don't think sale in the bullpen would work out that great logistically. Like in a perfect world, 100%, 100% perfect, the Red Sox would lo- would use Sale as their high leverage guy, right? Like I, in a perfect world, if Sale's in the bullpen, he'd be my closer. He'd throw three games in a week. That would be a lot of throwing for a guy we're worried about injury. So that doesn't work, right? Chris Sale warms up on Monday, pitches on Monday. Warms up on Wednesday, pitches on Wednesday. Does it again on Thursday. That that's not real advantageous for a guy that you're concerned about. So I don't think that version of bullpen Chris Sale works. Then the other version is, is you, you have a schedule. Okay, Chris Sale will throw two innings in the bullpen on Monday and two innings in the bullpen on Friday. That is fine for him. It's not great for the team, though, right? It's not great for the team. Like, Chris Sale can't pitch. He pitches on Monday. He pitches on Friday. He can't pitch on Monday, Tuesday, or he can't pitch on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. He can't pitch on Saturday, Sunday. So now the bullpen is one man short a lot. I don't love that. Like multiple times per week, the bullpen is one man short. And what if the starter's great? And now you don't need Sale to go in. So now you've kind of burned him warming up just not to use him. I, I I don't love that. I think the best bet... For Chris Sale this year is you hope to get 12 to 15 starts out of him and you go from there. Take your time in getting him ready. 
get him ready for, you know, hopefully the middle end of July. I think sales just throw, he's getting ready to face live hitters. Like he's still at least three weeks away. I would say at least three weeks to a month. He hasn't even faced live hitters yet. So Chris sale comes back mid July. Let's just say a month from now, mid July after the all-star break, July 20th, he's the starter 12 to 15 starts. Whitlock's back in the pen. His innings get capped. You maybe go add another arm or two at the deadline. I think this is the best thing for the Celt- or for the uh, Red Sox, rather. I think this is the best course of action for them. All right, so that's number one on the Red Sox topic list. Number two, this series starting tonight between the Red Sox and Mariners is hugely important to both teams. I think it's more important to the Red Sox. I think it is more important to the Red Sox. It's huge for Seattle, like massive for Seattle. But somehow I think it's more important for the Red Sox. And look, this is a close debate because I had on Jason Churchill earlier today. I had him on on the podcast version of the show, and I asked him what he thought. And, of course, he said Seattle. Uh, maybe Seattle just because they're, they're further to go. There's further to go for them. Um, Seattle's obviously chasing Boston for that that last wild card spot at this point. I think uh, you know three or four games back right now, the, the standings in front of me. But uh, And Seattle is at home at this point, and they, they've uh, – uh, they've been trying to play catch up for quite a while now, and they haven't really put together that seven game win streak like Boston just came out of. Yeah, the conventional wisdom is that it's more important to Seattle because the Mariners have further to go and they're at home. I still think it's more important to the Red Sox. If you are the Red Sox, you have to look at this. The Red Sox are seven and 14 against their own division, they are seven and 14 against the American League East. Your division is much harder than the Mariners' division right now. The Red Sox need to stack as many wins as possible up against non-AL East opponents because it's going to be a lot harder for them to win games in their division. The Red Sox are not making up a bunch of games against the Yankees. They're not taking everything from the Rays. They're not taking everything from the Blue Jays. So there's when they get back to division play, there is going to be more losses there. The Red Sox need to stack wins against non-divisional opponents. That's why it was huge what they did against the A's and what they did against the Angels. They they need to take two of three at least from Seattle and do the same thing. They need to come back on this road trip at eight and two, I think. Because when you get back to divisional play and you are taking on the Yankees and the Blue Jays and the Rays, you are not just going to run through those teams. You are going to suffer losses. You have to come through and win these kind of games. The Mariners, on the other hand, well, obviously, I personally want them to win every game they play. They have a much more favorable division schedule. They have 16 games left with the A's, one of the worst teams in baseball. They have, you know, 12 games left with Texas, a mid-level under 500 team. The Angels, if the Angels are healthy, I maintain that the Angels can be good. But if the Angels look like they've looked recently and the Mariners have 19 games left against the Angels, there's going to be some wins there. So, yes, well, I think as a Mariners fan, there's a huge sense of urgency for the M's in this series. There And there is. It's not as important as it is to the Red Sox. It's just not. 
the division for the Red Sox is too good. You're not ma- you're not pulling in a lot of wins in your division. You're already seven and fourteen. Let's see, you get what? 19, 38, 57. You get 76 games against your division. You've already played 21, and you're at a 33% winning percentage. You're, you're not going to flip it on its head completely. So you got to get wins now when you can. You've got to get wins now when you can. Um, all right, let's see. One more thing here on the Red Sox. I thought this was very cool and very refreshing, by the way. Red Sox lose last night to the Angels 5-2. Obviously, it snapped the Red Sox seven-game win streak. After the game, Alex Cora spoke about Shohei Otani's performance. Uh, obviously, you know, to see him hit a home run while he's going out there for seven innings, that's impressive. And that's why I keep saying he's the best athlete in the world, you know, because to compete at this level on the mound and at the plate the way he does is 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 eye-opening. It's unreal. I thought that was refreshing. I thought it was very refreshing to hear Alex Chorus be so complimentary of him. I don't listen to what everybody says about Otani, but I have to imagine there are people who are tired of the coverage of him. There are people who try to downplay the significance of what he does, and there are people who are kind of resentful of all the attention that he gets. I'm glad that Alex Cora, even after a loss, came out and said what is the exact truth here. Shohei Otani is unreal. He is unreal. Alex Cora called him the best athlete in the world. That's incredibly high praise, and it's deserved high praise. Shohei Otani is an incredible athlete, and what he's doing deserves to be celebrated. I understand that athletes can't always revere a guy who is their peer, and you can't idolize a guy you have to beat, but I appreciate Alex Cora's appreciation of him. No one in baseball can do what Shohei Otani is doing. Last night, Shohei Otani threw a baseball 101 miles an hour, and last night he hit a baseball 400 feet. To homer off guys who throw 101 and to throw one at 101 yourself, that is jaw-dropping. That is eye-opening. We, in our lifetimes, have never seen anything like this. Babe Ruth wasn't doing this. Babe Ruth was not the pitcher that Otani is. This is fascinating. And I know they're late nights out there, but I wish the Red Sox would play the Angels more often just so we could see Otani more often because it's that good and it's that special. And we're, you know, we're done with the Angels all year now. The Red Sox are done with the Angels all year now. So we won't see Otani again unless you just choose to watch him play against somebody else. And, and that, to me, as a baseball fan, is, is sad because I would love to see more of him. It was incredible. What what Shohei Otani does is absolutely mesmerizing. And I appreciate that Alex Cora has the foresight to understand it and has the courage is the wrong word, but has the sense of the moment to recognize it. Last night was amazing. I wish the Red Sox would have won. I wish Otani wouldn't have hit the home run. But the fact that he can throw seven innings, 100 pitches, 100 miles an hour, and can hit a ball 400 feet, that, that, my friend, is gifted. And we got to see it last night. So I hope you were awake for it. All right, that is going to do it for us. I think the Celtics are going to win tonight. I think the Celtics are going to win tonight. My score prediction, 109 to 104. 
I think the Celtics win 109-104. to 104. I think there is a chance that when we come in on Monday, we're talking about a Celtics championship. I think it's possible. I would say the Celtics win tonight and Golden State wins in, in game five on Sunday. I'd say that's more likely, but it is possible. We're talking about a Celtics championship come Monday's show. Red Sox Mariners tonight, 10-10 first pitch, 9-10 with the pregame show. Jazz with George Thomas is coming up next. Have a great weekend, everybody. I'll see you Monday on the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV AM and FM.